Some of you are old enough to watch old newsreels and those kind of things. Well, remember a guy by the name of Will Rogers. How many of you remember Will Rogers? Yeah, everybody with gray hair. Thank you. I saw those hands. He was a humorist. He was a columnist. He was a cowboy. He, he performed in vaudeville. He was a stage actor. And uh, he died in 1935. That's... Uh, long time ago now, but just to see how some things never change, he said a lot of funny things, and he said a lot of funny things about the U.S. government. Will Rogers quipped, all I can say about the United States Senate is that it opens with prayer and closes with an investigation. <laughs> some things never change. Alexander Hamilton, he said, started the U.S. Treasury with nothing, and that was the closest our country has ever been to being even. I like this one. Be thankful we're not getting all the government we're paying for. <laughs> he said, after, I bet after seeing us, George Washington would sue us for calling him father. I don't make jokes. I just watch the government and report the facts. And then this one's, to me, particularly interesting. Everything is changing. People are taking their comedians seriously and the politicians as a joke. <laughs> so do things change or not? What about the Christian life? What about our relationship to sin? Do, do things get better? Do they get worse? Or do they stay about the same? Have you ever felt like you're on a merry-go-round of sin, but you couldn't figure out how to get off even though you wanted to? Someone has said in that sense it is a merry -go, isn't a merry-go-round, it's a miserable go-round. You hate going round and round. You hate doing the same dumb thing over and over, but you don't know how to get off this stupid thing. And that's what Paul describes in the text we read in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, about his spiritual experience. He hates what he is doing, but he can't stop doing it. And here we see the portrait of a struggling Christian, one by the name of Paul, of all people. He knows that God gave us the law. He knows that the law is spiritual. He knows the law is good. It's the right thing to do. The problem is, he says, he can't do it. He doesn't have the power to get off the merry-go-round of sin. So, so what is he supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? What are each of us, any of us, supposed to do? What do we do when we don't even understand what to do? Now, before we dig into the scripture text in Romans chapter 7 and stir up all the dust, as it were, as we're digging into this, I want us to see where we're going to come out when all the dust is, is settled. So I want you to notice that Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25, particularly 14 through 25, are a parenthesis in Paul's argument. They're set apart from Paul's main point, from the flow of, of what he wants us to know. And we could have easily gone from, the, from verse 6 of the 7th chapter, if you want to look at that, verse 6. And we could go clear over to chapter 8 without missing a beat in what he is saying here. Verse 6 says, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We serve in the newness of the Spirit, not the oldness of the letter, of the law. Now go over to chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 2, and we see the same thought repeated. For the law of the Spirit is life in Christ Jesus. It has set you free from the law of sin and death. Same thought, 
Clear back in chapter 7, verse 6. We find it in chapter 8, verse 2. And then he goes on to talk about in chapter 8. All of chapter 8 is how to live the Christian life in the Spirit of God. In the Spirit and through the Spirit. For example, in, in verse 4, we walk according to the Spirit. In verse 5, we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. In verse 9, we are in the Spirit, and the Spirit of God indwells us. Verse 11, the Spirit of God raised Jesus. Verse 13, by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, and on and on. I bet you in chapter 8, all of us can find at least one of our favorite verses in all of Scripture in chapter 8. And they're about chapter 8. And so chapter 8 shows us a completely new way to live in the Spirit of God. Now that we have been freed, set free from the law of sin and death, this is how we are to live in the Spirit. So the question is, why did Paul even bother to put this lengthy and controversial parentheses in chapter 7? And it is controversial. And the controversy has to do with who is this guy? Who, what's the identity of this man who struggles so much with his sin? Who is this man who can't do the good he wants to do and he does the very thing he does not want to do? Who is this? Now, some say that Paul is referring to his life before he came to Christ, his pre-converted life. The man that Paul was before he came to Christ, the, the time in his life when he was a Pharisee of a Pharisees who tried to live the law. But that doesn't work because Paul says, as a Pharisee, I was blameless according to the law, so it can't be that. But people who hold this view that it's about somebody who's not even saved go on to say, well, wow, anybody who is saved and has the Holy Spirit sure, surely can't be sinning that much. They don't have that much struggle with sin. And, and these folks tend towards a view that's called entire sanctification. That you can reach a point of holiness and even sinlessness in this life. Or you can have total victory over sin. And I already see you guys shaking your heads. <laughs> now others say, on the other extreme is, well, Paul is talking about the normal Christian life. That the old nature, the old man, pretty much keeps getting the best of us. You get the best of us until we stand before God and one day we will be perfect when we are fully sanctified. So Christianity is typically divided between those two extremes or close to these two extremes. One view is that you can have total victory over sin in this life. The other view is that your struggle with sin is so hard that you're going to have very little victory. Now, now, both of these main views tend to ignore or downplay the relationship of the parentheses to chapter 8 and what it means to live the Christian life according to the Spirit of God. So here is what I think, and it's more than think. My wife says, don't use the word think because they think you're not sure. Well, I think, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> what the parentheses is all about. And I want to give to this to you up front, and, and then we'll get into the text and see what Paul has to say about it. As you know, in the first few chapters of Romans, Paul has spent a lot of time showing us the depth of our sin. What? That all have sinned and fallen, what? Short of the glory of God. That all of us are miserable sinners without Christ. That there's no works of righteousness. Whatever works of righteousness we have are just filthy rags. That there's nothing by which we can stand before a holy God and say, I'm good enough to be here. 
In order to be in right standing with God, to be justified, which means to be declared righteous, what? We must first need to understand the depth of our sin. That we are justified only by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for us. There was nothing we could do in ourselves. The wages of sin is death. Death. Think about that. Let that sink in for a moment. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, we need to know and understand the depth of our sin, the futility of our good works, the futility of trying to keep the law before we will be in a place where we will cry out to God and say, God, I can't do it. I can't live good enough. I am a miserable sinner. And our justification at that point, our salvation, is totally and completely dependent upon Jesus Christ, not by our own good works. Remember that? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Nobody's going to stand before Jesus Christ one day and brag about anything. They're only going to glory and salvation in Jesus Christ. So what is true about our justification, what is true about our salvation, is also true about our sanctification. In the same way that our justification is completely, totally dependent upon Christ, Christ alone, our sanctification, our holiness, our becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, is completely and utterly dependent upon not keeping the law, not by doing good works, but on the Holy Spirit. Because even in Christ, we can't keep the law perfectly, can we? In other words, like our salvation in sanctification and holiness, becoming more and more like Christ, we always need to understand the depth of our sin to completely depend upon God and His Spirit for our sanctification the same way we depend upon God for our justification. And this is what Paul doesn't want us to miss. Even though in Christ Jesus we have been set free from the law of sin and death, Paul says that that law of sin and death, that principle of sin, still abides in each one of us. This is so important to understand if we are to live free and walk in the Spirit. So Paul is dealing then with here with the presence of two natures, as it were, two principles at work in every child of God. Now salvation does not mean that God changes the old nature, that God takes our old nature, he, he cleanses it, he reforms it. Salvation is not shining up the old man and restoring him and making him run better like we would a rusty old car. The believer's old nature, our old nature, the flesh, is just as wicked and just as opposed to, to the Spirit of God today as the day we were saved. So let's go back to Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 14, where we see that st sin still lives in us. The principle of sin is still present in the life of the believer. Romans chapter 7, verse 14, he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage 
to sin. The law is spiritual. What does that mean? Now, in Paul's letter to the Romans, the character of the law has been described primarily in four words. The law is holy. The law is just. The law is good. And here, as he says, the law is spiritual. That the law is holy and just, nobody can deny. Because it came from our holy God who is perfectly just in all that he says and does. The law is good. It is good because it reveals God's holiness to us and helps us see our need for a Savior. But what does it mean that the law is spiritual? It means that the law deals with the inner man, the spiritual part of man, as well as with outer actions. Now, in the original giving of the law in Exodus, the emphasis was on outward actions. Here's what you're supposed to do. Here's what you're not supposed to do. Here's what God's people, how they're supposed to act and how they're not supposed to act. But 40 years later, after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, Moses restated the law in Deuteronomy. Anybody know what the word Deuteronomy means? It means second law. Moses had to give the law a second time to the new generation. And in the second law in Deuteronomy, Moses emphasized the inner quality of the law as it relates to man's heart, as it relates to who we are inside. Remember that? We read that as our call to worship last Sunday in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, the inner man. These words which I am commanding you today shall be where? On your heart, in the inner man. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, puts it this way. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? The deeper interpretation, the meaning of the law, relates to the inner man. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, if you have lusted after a woman, you what? You have committed adultery with her in your heart but here's the problem which of us even for a brief moment has ever loved the lord our god with all our heart with all our soul with all our mind and with all that we are in the inner being which of us even for a brief moment loved and served the lord with all our heart and our soul with the entirety of who we are deep inside of us that's the dilemma isn't it Even as a person who has received Christ and trusted in him for his forgiveness, I'm still falling short, right? The principle of sin, Paul says, is still at work in me. So Paul continues in verse 15 of Romans chapter 7. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. The problem here for Paul and the problem for us is that the law cannot enable you to do good. It hasn't that power. There's, there's no ability in the law to help you do good. 
God never intended the law to save you or to make you holy. The Pharisees thought God, that was the reason for the law. The law will make us this way or the other way. But the law is intended, said Paul in Romans, what? To reveal our sin. The law is intended to show us that by nature we are sinners. We are are lawbreakers. And so three times in this passage, in one way or another, Paul stated that this sin dwells in us. Verse 14, I am sold into bondage to sin. Verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Verse 20, sin dwells in me. Paul is referring to that old nature, the old man, what the Bible calls him, that old man which is also called the flesh. The problem is that the old man, the flesh, even though he has been crucified with Christ, still seeks to control us by the way of the flesh. Our flesh, which has a propensity towards sin because of our old sinful nature, has been well trained by the old man. The old man. And so personifying sin, Paul goes so far to say, sin dwells in him, verse 20. The principle or the law of evil dwells in him. Now when you read this section of Romans chapter 7, you see that Paul uses the pronoun I over and over. I am of the flesh. I do the very thing I do not want to do. I am no longer the one doing it. For I know that nothing dwells good in me. Over a dozen times, Paul uses the word I or me. Why does Paul use the words I, me, and mine and personify it this way, make it personal? It shows us that the writer, Paul, is having a problem with self. With self. That's what Paul wants us to do wants us to know. He has a problem with self-will, self-control, self-worth, self-sufficiency, selfishness. When I was in the college in the 60s, we were all talking about self-realization, where you find yourself, you come to know yourself. And Tony Campolo, who was a popular youth Christian speaker at the time, said, if you're trying to find yourself, what if you find out you're an onion? And they go, well, what do you mean? You take off one layer, you take off another layer, you take off another layer, and there's there's nothing there. Paul here is talking about, we all have a problem with self, where it's all about me. All of life is about me. And we now live in the what? The me generation. Now, anyone who frequently uses the words I, me, and mine has a problem with self, that person is self-absorbed. And that's what Paul is showing us here by using the word I. And he's showing us that when we are self-absorbed and it's all about me, sin gets the better of me every time. When we are self-absorbed or we try to do it ourselves or we try to please ourselves, every time sin wins. You see, as a believer, your mind, that is what you think, your will, what you desire, your body, what you do, can be either controlled by the old nature or by the new nature in Christ through his Holy Spirit. So put another way, your mind, your will, your body is either controlled by the flesh, which is sinful, or by the Spirit of God, who is holy. 
And that's why Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, when he was saying, there's how you should live then. Walk by the Spirit, he said, and you will what? Not carry out the desires of the flesh. There's two ways to walk, either by the Spirit or by the flesh. If you walk by the flesh, you're going to carry out the desires of the flesh. Spirit versus flesh. Walking by the Spirit versus doing the works of the flesh. You see, if the believer is trying to live for self, as a Christian, if you're trying to live for self, trying to, in the flesh to be good, even, relying on yourself, on your self-will, on your self-sufficiency, you're self-dependent, then the statement in Romans indicate that this believer has two serious problems. Number one, he cannot do the good he wants to do. And number two, he does the evil that he does not want to do. Now, does this mean that at some point Paul cannot stop himself from breaking the law? Not at all. Believers cannot stop them. Unbelievers cannot stop themselves from breaking the law. But as believers, with our new nature and Christ in us, the Holy Spirit in us, there are times, yeah, we can stop ourselves. You know, we, we don't just automatically become a liar, a thief, and a murderer like unbelievers. No, of course not. We can stop that. But Paul is saying that of himself, he could not obey God's law. And even when he did obey God's law, evil was still present in him even when he did what was right, because no matter what he did, his deeds were tainted by sin, because they're done in the flesh. After he had done his best, he had to admit he totally failed. And so he comes to a conclusion in verse 21 of Romans 7. I find that the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Now, this is a different problem than what we saw in Romans chapter 6. The problem there in Romans chapter 6 is, how can I stop sinning? How can I stop doing bad things? The problem here is, how can I do, ever do anything that's good? How can I do anything that's good? You know, you've probably heard this statement, do your best and trust God for the rest. You've heard that, right? Do your best. Did you know this is precisely what Paul is warning against here? Your best wasn't good enough to get you justified, and your best isn't good enough to get you sanctified. Yeah, did you ever think of that? Your best can't get you justified, it can't get you sanctified, it can't get you saved, it can't get you, make, you, make you holy. When you try to do your best, you will find that you will do what you don't want to do, and you don't do what you do want to do. Because the principle of evil is present in the flesh. In you who wants to do good, everything we do in the flesh is tainted by evil. We can't do anything in the flesh perfectly, can we? Without a hint of selfishness, without a hint of self-centeredness, without, without sin. Everything we do in the flesh is tainted by sin. Rather, we have to be completely and utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God. Do you know that's the way Jesus lived on this earth? Completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit? Even though he was without sin, he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Doesn't mean he emptied himself of his godness, but he emptied himself of the ability, as it were, to use his godness. 
He became totally and completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus said he didn't do anything unless he saw the Father doing it. Isn't that a great way to live? Unless God's doing it, Father's doing it, I'm I'm, I'm not going to do that. He only did what the, the Father was doing. He said he didn't say anything unless the Father told him to say it. Isn't that a great way to live? That's what it means to live and walk by the Spirit of God. Jesus was completely dependent upon the Spirit of God, and so he modeled for us the sanctified Christian life, free from the deeds of the flesh and free to serve the Father in the Spirit of God. And so in verse 22 of Romans chapter 7, Paul says an amazing thing in this very dark and disturbing portion of Scripture. He says, God's law delights me. Verse 22. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Like the psalmist, Paul rejoices. He delights in the law of God. Remember the psalmist cried out, cried out in 119th Psalm, verse 35. We read that two or three weeks ago. He says, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Paul says, I joyfully concur with this. Now in the inner man, the inward man may delight in the law of God, but the old nature delights in breaking the law of God. No wonder the believer who tries to live under the law rather than by the Spirit of God becomes tired, becomes discouraged, eventually gives up. So Paul goes on in verse 23 to talk about a war. This is war. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, the principle of my mind of what I want to do and don't want to do and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, the principle of sin which is in my members, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? He's a prisoner of war. He's a, he's a captive, and his condition is wretched. The Greek word translated wretched here indicates a person who's exhausted after a battle, who's just come through a battle. A bat, he, he's been waging war, and sin has been coming at him, and he's just totally exhausted and what could be more wretched than exerting all your energy trying to live a good life only to discover that your best is not good enough because of the flesh? And I think one of the tragic things is here that this is probably how most believers, how most Christians try to live the Christian life, if they try at all. The believer has an old nature that wants to keep him in bondage. So, so we say... I will get free from all these sins, and I determine here and now that I will not do this any longer. And what happens? He exerts all his willpower, all his energy, and for a time succeeds, but then, when he least expects it, he falls again. Why? Because he tried to overcome his old nature with law, with good deeds, with trying to be good. And the law cannot deliver us from the old nature. We are not saved by good works and we are not sanctified by good works. You know, when you move under law, you're only making the old nature stronger. Because that's what Paul showed us in Romans chapter 6. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 5, the strength of sin is the law. The strength of sin is the law. 
Instead of the law being a dynamo that gives us power to overcome, the law is a magnet that draws out all kinds of sin and corruption. You know, I've mentioned this before, just the simplest illustration. We, we talked about several other illustrations a few weeks ago that once we know the law says do not, then we, we want to do that. You're walking down the street and there's a fence right next to the sidewalk and, you know, you're, you're just walking down there and there's this big high fence. You don't think anything about it. And you're walking by one day to go to the coffee shop and you see there's a hole in the fence because somebody has put a sign above that hole that says do not look in this hole. The law has been stated. We want to go back and look in that hole. You know, we're going to try to sneak back and do that no matter what. And that's what the, the law does to us. The law is holy and just and good, but it arouses all those sinful passions in us, Paul said. When we try to get saved by keeping the law, which of course is an impossibility, the law draws out all kinds of sin and corruption out of us. And, and Paul has shown us that the law arouses all kinds of sinful passions. And in verse, or chapter 7, verse 5, he said that. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. And in the same way, when we try to become holy ourselves, sanctified by keeping the law, it's also an impossibility. It just makes us worse. It's a sad, wretched, exhausting way to live. But sadly, I think that's how most new believers try to live. What? Now that I'm saved, I've got to get my life cleaned up. I've got to stop doing this, that, and the other thing. I have to stop doing all those things. And I guess I've got to start doing all these other things. I've just got to set my mind to it. I've got to try harder. You know, we might give the Holy Spirit some credit. Well, now that the Holy Spirit's in me, but, you know, I've, I've still got to do it. And the main point of all of this is to show us that God's law is holy, righteous, and good, but it's not able to deliver us from the power of sin. And the Christian life is never free from the struggles that Paul describes here. We have to do battle with indwelling sin as long as we live on this earth, as long as we're in these earthly bodies, this flesh. And, and Paul is not merely describing a struggle here. Rather, he's talking about the potential of living a life of consistent defeat. He's not just describing an ongoing battle, but a losing ongoing battle. That if you try to live the Christian life by trying to overcome your sin, by keeping the law in your own effort, you're doomed to failure every time. You know, it's no wonder so many Christians give it up and drift away. If that's what the Christian life is all about, forget it. But as we grow to understand what it means to live in our new identity in Christ, what it means to walk in the power of of His Holy Spirit, we can experience consistent victory over sin. We will never be sinless, says Warren Wiersbe, but we will sin less as we grow. And also, as we grow, we come to see more and more of our own inward corruption, and we see more and more of God's holiness that we lament our own propensity towards sin, and we long for His holiness. And I think that's why this very strange portion of Scripture, all of a sudden, Paul gives thanks to God. He, he looks towards God's rescue. 
After saying in verse 24, who will set me free from this body of death? He says in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he goes back to the main thing. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind and serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, after Paul's jubilant explanation here, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, you'd expect him to get on with chapter (laughs) 8. Paul, give us the answer in chapter 8. Go on, tell us, how do we win victory over sin? But instead, he summarizes the war that he has just described with his mind, with his spirit. He, He wants to serve the law of God, but with his flesh, he serves the law of sin. And it leaves you with the feeling that sin is consistently winning. The victory doesn't come till chapter 8. Now, why does Paul throw in the thanks be to God here? Bishop Lightfoot says that while Paul's thanksgiving is out of place, he can't endure to leave the difficulty unsolved. So he gives us the solution parenthetically here, even though it interrupts his argument. But while the struggle against sin is a lifelong battle, what we do learn is that we can't win it in our own strength. And we learn that when we walk in the Spirit of God, we can experience consistent victory. That's the flavor of chapter 8 that we'll get to next week. That even when we walk in the Spirit, though, the daily struggle against sin is with us every day, every hour. The war within of chapter 7 is never eradicated in this life, but the difference is chapter 7 pictures consistent defeat if you live a certain way. It's always going to be defeat. Whereas chapter 8 pictures consistent triumph and victory even in the face of very severe adversity. And by God's grace, we can put the defeat of chapter 7 in the past and experience the consistent victory of chapter 8. But in order to experience the consistent victory over sin, but in order to experience consistent victory over sin, We must despair over our sin and cry out to God for deliverance. If we want to experience consistent victory over our sin, we must cry out to God for deliverance as a way of life. Pastor Bob Defenoff brings up another thought in all of this. He says that the problem of many Christians is not despair, like that of Paul, but their lack of it. They, they don't feel the anguish of their persistent disobedience. They avoid the struggle, often by minimizing their sin and say, well, that's just a personality quirk, or, or I'm just human, or the good one, well, I'm forgiven. I can do whatever I want. Another good one is, well, that's the way I was raised. If you understood my background, you know why I act the way, the way I do. They excuse it as normal. Everybody has his or her faults. But you will not experience victory over sin until you first see God's holy standard and realize how you are disobeying that standard. You must also realize often through repeated failures that you cannot obey God in your own strength. And then in despair you cry out, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death? And then as you search God's word for answers, you learn that the the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You learn to walk not according to the flesh, but you learn to walk according to God's spirit. And you begin to experience consistent victory 
over sin in your daily life. Dwight Eisenhower once said, War is a terrible thing. But if you're going to get into it, then you've got to get into it all the way. We haven't learned anything over the last 70 years, have we? Underestimating the power of the enemy, the enemy of our souls, the world, the flesh, and the devil, underestimating that is a sure way to lose. The war within us, within, will be with us as long as we live in these fallen bodies. It is winnable, not perfectly or permanently, but consistently. Consistently. But we can't be half-hearted in this. If we fully engage the battle using God's resources, we will consistently win. But we're going to have to wait till next time to see that in chapter 8. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for your commandments, for your law. They are our delight because they display your holiness. They're our delight because you show us a holy way to live, Father. But Father, we don't have that strength within ourselves, and so we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit who lives on the inside of us, who indwells us, and as we have been promised in Scripture, the Holy Spirit comes with power so that what I can't do myself, the Holy Spirit does. Father, I thank you that even when I do not know how to pray, the Holy Spirit prays for me, prays for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Father, I pray that even right now we'll be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is praying on behalf of each one of us as we fall short. And Father, I pray that as we get into these wonderful verses of Scripture in Romans chapter 8, beginning next week, Lord, that you'll begin to open our hearts and our minds and our wills to a completely new way to live because of who we are in Christ through your Spirit. And for this, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.